Welcome to the OIS Podcast, where you get candid conversations with the leaders and drivers of ophthalmic innovation. And now, here's our host, Tom Salemi. Hi, welcome back to the OIS Podcast. This is Tom Salemi. We are one month away from the next Ophthalmology Innovation Summit, which means we're also one month away from the annual meeting of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. So today, we'll bring you a bit of an OIS podcast twofer. Our guest is Dr. Ed Holland. Ed is Director of Cornea Services at the Cincinnati Eye Institute. He's also a regular and valued contributor to OIS, and he also happens to be this year's program chair of the ASCRS annual meeting. So Ed will share some of the highlights and new additions to the ASCRS program. Then he and I talk about the state of ophthalmology, what worries them the most, and what gives them the most hope. Ed Allen, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, we're about a month away from ASCRS, and uh, you are the program chair of, of this event coming up, and I uh, thought it would be a good time to, uh, to hit upon some highlights. Anything uh, coming up next month in San Diego that you'd like to, uh, to tell folks about? Sure. I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about our annual meeting. You know, we feel that the ASCRS annual meeting is, is the best meeting for inter-segment surgeons, whether we're talking about cataract surgery, refractive surgery, coronal surgery, or glaucoma surgery, and uh, a lot of exciting things. In addition to our, our typical um, symposia, we have uh, almost 30 symposia that are invited speakers on key topics. We have over 700 uh, free papers. We have 150 courses that will be presented on a variety of inter-segment uh, topics. Um, and then we have our skills transfer sessions, and we have uh, 16 of those. And then, uh, in addition, we have kind of our, our, our big general sessions each day. And uh, starting on, on Saturday, which is our opening general session, we uh, we have our Hall of Fame um, inductees. And uh, this year, Fred Blody and Gunter von Norden are two inductees, two you know, giants in ophthalmology. Uh, in addition, uh, we'll have our big course lecture, which is going to be on Lamellar Surgery and Coronal Transplantation Revolution and Evolution by Donald Tan. Uh, and then we'll have our outgoing president's address and incoming president's address. And so and that's that's always a very, very well-attended session. On Sunday, we start out the day with what we call the Sunday Summit. And the first part of this uh, morning general session is our lecture on science and medicine. And uh, this year we have Daniel Kraft, MD, who's going to talk on the future of healthcare and medicine and where technology is going to take us and specific to uh, to ophthalmology. He's a very, very dynamic speaker, and uh, I'm sure uh, everyone's going to enjoy it. The second half of the Sunday Summit is our, our annual 60 Minutes program, where we have a, a group of invited speakers, and it's packaged like the 60 Minutes program, and it's, uh, it's uh, very important topics with a, a little bit of fun thrown in there as well. And then on Monday, uh, the general session is our annual Innovators session. Um, so we have multiple innovative talks, if you will, that are invited talks on some new techniques and technology. And then the session uh, is, is completed with the Charles Kelman Innovators Lecture. And this year it's Shigeru Kinoshita uh, from Japan talking on novel treatment dimensions for corneal endothelial dysfunction. And uh, he is a, a very worthy uh, person of, uh, of the Innovators Award this year. And then on Tuesday, we wrap things up with our, our film theater um, and uh, and then finally the hot off the press session. 
in which all the clinical committees kind of uh, wrap up what they thought was the best of our meeting uh, throughout the week and, and present uh, kind of the best of uh, topics. So it's uh, it's filled with a lot of, uh, uh, I think, great lectures, great symposium, and I encourage uh, all anterior surgeons to uh, to attend. How have these events like these changed uh, over the decades? You know, we're obviously in a, a much richer uh, world of information these days, yet, you know, these clinical events are still, for obvious reasons, important to attend. How how do you keep working to, to, to keep it fresh and to keep people uh, not only coming back but enjoying the time that they're there? Well, I, I think that's a, that's a great question because about 10 years ago, um, a lot of educators were predicting the demise of big meetings. And I can tell you um, four of the five last ASCRS meetings have been the biggest meetings we've ever had. And I was involved as program chair at AAO, and I saw the same thing because uh, I was doing that prior to, to, to this position. And, and the same thing was happening at AAO. They were saying the big meeting's going to go away. I, I think a couple things. Number one, you have to have uh, you have to have you know, good education. And so if you provide quality education, I think people will come. And number two, I think people still like face to face. There's there's value in seeing colleagues and talking to colleagues. And there's things you can get only at a big meeting, such as our exhibit floor. You know, our exhibit floor. A lot of the companies. You know, this is the this is the spring. Of the, of, of the, you know, kind of beginning of the year and, and they're launching new products. And, you know, so a lot of our attendees want to see what's on the exhibit floor. And that's an important part of what they do. Um, and I, th- I think, you know, it's different going to a regional meeting. You don't have the same type of, of um, uh, you know, presentations. You don't get the, the who's who in, uh, in the intersegment sh- surgery showing up. And not only do we have the best of our, of our uh, U.S. speakers, but we have uh, superstar international speakers as you can see from some from our awards this year. So uh, you really just can't get any type of, uh, uh, I think, educational experience unless you go to a big meeting. And, and we try to keep our meeting fresh by changing program programming in and out uh, and, and making sure that our main lectures are, are, are high quality. And uh, uh, in the last several years, for instance, we have really tried hard to, uh, to create a, a track for our young physicians. I think our young physicians like to learn differently than the old physicians like me. And so we have special programming and uh, that are targeting the young physicians. And, and some of this programming is actually put on by our, our uh, Young Eye Surgeons Committee, the YES Committee, the cl- a new clinical committee that looks to have creative programming and they get feedback from young physicians on how they want to learn. So, so we, we, we try to change things up to keep it fresh and, and, uh, and maintain high quality. We've talked about this uh, in the past. What is the speaking of young physicians? What is the supply of of young physicians coming into into ophthalmology? Is there is there a, is it steady? Is there enough? Or uh... well, I, I, you know, I think right now, I think young physicians, um, you know, have good good opportunity. I think everybody's busy. What what concerns me is as I look into you know, the, the statistics I see in the, the future of eye care, the aging population. Um, we're not really training a lot more eye care professionals. And if you look at the predictions of what's going to happen to cataract, glaucoma, macular degeneration, you know, all those are age-related disease. We're all living longer. The baby boomers are now going to hit these these, these ages where they, these diseases will become much more prevalent. And uh, it, it is a little bit alarming that we I don't think we've really adjusted um, how we're going to take care of these patients. And something's going to have to change. 
uh, either the, the existing number is going to have to be a lot more uh, efficient or we're going to have to somehow work with physician extenders, whether that's going to be working more directly with optometry in terms of, of, of transferring some some more primary and secondary care to them or working with uh, nurse practitioners. But but if we're doing the, if we're doing the same um, practice now, the way we take care of patients, and we don't increase our numbers or we don't change the way we take care of patients, we're going to be overwhelmed with the number of, of uh, patients with age-related eye disease. Is is technology the answer, or just really part of part of the answer? I think technology will be um, is a big part of the solution. I mean, you look at how how, how much uh, more efficiently we can we can do cataract surgery or do a vitrectomy because we have much better equipment. So that that'll be a part of it. But that's not technology cannot solve the, the manpower issue that we're going to be facing just in the sheer numbers and. You look, we do about three and a half million cataracts a year now, and that number is going to double, um, you know, in 2020 to 2025. So, um, and I don't think most ophthalmologists feel they can double the number of cataracts they do each year. So we're we're gonna we're gonna have to either um, train more people, or um, existing surgeons are gonna have to spend less time in the clinic and more time in the OR. But we're we're gonna have to do things differently if we're gonna if we're gonna take care of all the eye disease. I mean, glaucoma right now. I think most regions would would admit that there's a you know they can all use more more glaucoma surgeons. Um, you know, in, in our area, you know, we have we in our group we have several glaucoma surgeons. They're all as busy as they could possibly be, and we could use more. And and uh, I can't imagine what it's going to be like ten years from now. Well, my nephew just got into medical school, so I'll uh, I'll try to steer him your way. How's that sound? <laughs> we. We'd appreciate it, but please make sure he's glaucoma trained. <laughs> I'll do my best. He never listens to me. Uh, we're going uh, to take a quick break, and we'll be right back after this message. Join the innovators, entrepreneurs, and investors who are changing healthcare at MedTech Investing Conference on May 6th in Minneapolis. The premier event in MedTech Investing will bring together the industry's investors, entrepreneurs, strategics, and regulatory professionals in one of the country's richest MedTech communities, Minneapolis. This must-attend conference will leave attendees with the insights and connections necessary to find their own sure path to success. To register for the MedTech Investing Conference, go to www.medtechconference.com. And we're back. Uh, a, a few uh, OISs ago, you gave an outstanding overview of, of the dry eye market. Uh, market. And uh, where, where, where does dry eye stand today? It really seems to have established itself as a, a condition that, that demands attention and demands treatment. And we're seeing some products that are emerging to provide relief. Well, I think, unfortunately, you know, it's really only been, uh, for the longest time, cornea specialist interest in dry eye. And if you think back, um, in the 90s, if, if if there was a seminar on dry eye, there'd be you know, cornea, a handful of cornea people, and that would be about it. And and it was, it's been a disease that's been neglected. I think we we neglected it for a couple reasons. Number one, we didn't understand the the quality of life impact that dry eye has. And I think people are just we're kind of told that they should expect to have dry eye, and there's not much we can do for it. And two, the frustration that clinicians had. We don't. We didn't have a lot. We still don't have a lot. Of great therapies for dry eye, and so as a clinician, you get frustrated if you can't help the patient. You tend to you tend to try to pass the patient off. So, uh, but what 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 has happened with dry eye is kind of interesting. I think the reason why dry eye is is, is really 
kind of a hot topic now is it's because it's really affecting surgical outcomes. And it was the it was the refractive surgeons that first kind of pushed this message. So beyond cornea, the first the next group of people to get interested in dry were refractive surgeons. And if you look at the number one complication of uh, of uh, uh, LASIK and, and and PRK is dry eye. It's it's uh, the surgically induced dry eye. And so they had incredible technology, had incredibly good results early on, and then the patient over the next few months was unhappy with their quality of vision and their comfort because they had. They had uh, uh, LASIK PRK uh, associated dry eyes, so refractive surgeons became quite interested in in diagnosing dry eye, you know, preoperatively seeing which patients are at risk, trying to optimize the, uh, the ocular surface. And then what happened was uh, refractive cataract surgery. So premium myowells came in came into vogue, and 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 patients were were excited, and the surgeon did you know what they needed to do to get a, a great outcome. And again, the patients weren't happy. And one of the leading causes of unhappy patients in uh, premium myowell uh, cataract surgery is dry eye. Um, and as the population ages, dry eye becomes more common. So it's even more common in the cataract population than than uh, than we see in other populations. And so the refractive cataract surgeon said, well, "Tell me about dry eye. How do I diagnose it? You know, what patients are at risk? You know, do I need to?" pre-treat the patient or delay surgery and get the the ocular surface better. Maybe I, I don't put a multifocal IOL in a patient. I can't make their surface better. So so it, it was the refractive and the cataract surgeons that kind of brought this to the forefront. And you know, even we see now glaucoma surgeons are realizing the the effect of, of long-term treatments they have on the ocular surface uh, with you know, years and years of, of, of drops that contain BAK and the toxicity they cause. So Dry seems to be a hot topic, no matter what specialty in ophthalmology, and everybody seems to be concerned about dry eye. And it's it it, it should be that way. And, and um, you know, dry patients they they have a compromise in their quality of vision, and and chronic dry patients are uncomfortable every day of their lives, so their quality of lives are affected. Interesting. And, and as I said, it was a great presentation. Anyone can go to ois.net and uh, search dry eye, and you'll find it easily. What are some other uh, uh, Areas that are getting attention that technology or that that we're finding technological technical technical solutions to, and that uh, have you uh, excited as a as a practitioner? Well, I'm very excited about drug delivery. I, I, as I look and, and and see what we ask our patients to do, I think when we solve drug delivery, I mean getting the 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 onus of delivering the drug away from the patient and onto a new technology. We're going to look back and say, how do we expect a patient to take multiple drops a day to manage their glaucoma or multiple drops a day for a month to manage their post-surgical inflammation? Uh, And so um, I I think the patients will really embrace a dropless drug delivery, and I think most busy surgeons will too. What we'll find is we'll have uh, better outcomes uh, and we'll we'll eliminate the problem of compliance. And there's, there's two problems with compliance. There's there's the inadvertent compliance that you know a patient can't physically get all the drops in, and then they're just a non-compliant patient because they they just they just don't care enough to to, to worry about getting all the drops in. But so compliance is a big issue. So I I I think we're going to move to dropless drug delivery very quickly. I, I certainly um, there are numerous startup companies that are, are evaluating various technologies, and the first group of patients that I think will benefit will be the cataract patients. Right now, intracameral antibiotics are used by a significant number of surgeons, and 
and it's certainly very, very popular in Europe. So uh, that that isn't far away. And then there's companies working on depot delivery of the of a steroid such as dexamethasone, and there's clinical trials ongoing that show that you can control inflammation and you can tr- control the duration of the steroid. So you, you want a steroid for two weeks or three weeks or four weeks, you can control that by the by the, the, the formulation that you use. So that's the, the second piece of the, of the puzzle in the cataract patient. And then finally, the non-steroidal, the same technology of, of, of uh, depot delivery and, and, and uh, duration control will be, will be finally get to the non-steroidal. And when you get there, then you, you know, your cataract patients won't need drops. And I think that will be a, a huge innovation that will be better outcomes, better compliance, and, uh, and uh, better vision for our patients. The next group will be the, 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 to solve will be how to deliver uh, dropless drug delivery to our chronic eye disease patients. Um, and, and the two that are, I, I think are, are most uh, concerning me are the, are the dry patients and the glaucoma patients. You know, dry patients, um, uh, we, we don't have a lot of therapies. There's several new therapies that are being evaluated in addition to topical cyclosporin, which is, which is approved. But uh, some new ones like lefitograss, which is a, a new integrin that that uh, that works. Um, you could take one of, one of these anti-inflammatories or a really really low dose steroid and deliver it uh, in a pump to plug, if you will, um, and, um, and 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 have con- constant kind of low dose maintenance therapy of of dry eye with some of these anti-inflammatories. Um, and there's companies working on pump to plug drug delivery. Um, so the patient would come in, the, the eye care professional would put a plug in with the, the drug, and, and the patient would have that drug delivered for three or four months, then come in and, and have a new plug put in. And obviously, this would work extremely well for glaucoma. Uh, we know that uh, numerous studies show that uh, uh, up to half the drops we prescribe for glaucoma don't get in the eye for a variety of reasons. And um, I, I, what, what this would do if we had Again, a, a drug delivery system that avoided drops would be better compliance for our patients, and, and we think better control of the glaucoma. And, and, and certainly, patients I think would uh, be very, very excited about that technology. And do products like these in clinical trials do they show a strong benefit, uh, even though perhaps the control group, assuming it's people using eye drops, are likely more careful uh, using those eye drops in these trials than they might be uh, in well, their everyday uh, life. Yeah, that's a good question. So the, the ongoing trials now are are in glaucoma, and, um, and there's companies that have shown that they can they're not inferior to uh, Timolol or latanoprost in a drop drug delivery system. And you're right, there you know these are these are the controls are patients who are really monitored. So you're you're really getting a skewed population of the best drop drug delivery you could possibly get. Real world is probably half that. So that's an excellent point that really isn't uh, uh, demonstrated in the clinical trial. A lot of challenges to trials. Well, you, you've worked with many startups. What, what do you enjoy most about that? Is it Do you go in it as a clinician to, to, to cure someone, to find, a, to find a cure? Or do you really like the innovative process, the, creati- the creative process? Well, I, you know, I think... Uh, I, I do like this partnership with industry. It's exciting. You know, I, I certainly like seeing patients and doing what I do, but there's various aspects to, to my practice that kind of keep me going and excited, you know, going to work every day. 
you know, uh, interacting with patients in the clinician in the clinic and the operating is one part of my practice, and I enjoy that very much. But I also teach. I have residents and fellows, and 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 having residents and fellows around constantly challenging keeps you keeps you in the game. You know, you can't really you can't really stagnate because uh, they're not going to let you. So that's an interesting part of my practice. Uh, we do clinical research. Um, we do clinical research and coronal surgery or ocular, uh, ocular surface stem cell transplant program that we have that we're constantly uh, trying to make better, and that's a big part of our clinical research. And then finally, working with companies, and I do work with, with big companies that, you know, that, that have great products and are looking to add to their, their products, and then startup companies that have kind of new innovative ideas that, that need help. And, 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 and when you work with a small company and a startup company, you certainly – uh, you have a lot more impact, if you will, at, at what the company might do. So um, all those different aspects of my practice certainly make uh, it really enjoyable. And, you know, again, still love going to work after after doing this for about 30 years. Final question. Uh, I had a conversation with Mark Blumenkrantz a couple of podcasts ago about this, about how the the fact that more physicians are working directly for hospitals. And this is less so uh, as we started OIS in November. It's less so in, or in October. It was less so in ophthalmology, but more so in other specialties. But as physicians uh, start to not work for themselves, but work for larger corporations, does that uh, cut into their, their time to innovate or their ability to innovate? And, and do you see that impacting uh, uh, ophthalmic innovation going forward? I do. I think... Um I think what will happen is, and I've talked to my colleagues who are on the, you know, outside ophthalmology, but in the, you know, the, the, the especially that have been taken over by hospitals and, and hospital groups, is, is you lose control. Uh, you are, you, you, you lost in control in, in terms of how you run your practice. You, you really have to fit into uh, what they expect in your, your practice. Now, they're not all the same, but. In, in the Cincinnati market, 85% of all physicians are employed by a, a hospital or some type of uh, hospital group. And uh, you know, they, they started with primary care. They went to medical subspecialties. Then they went to hospital-based surgery, such as CV surgery. And, um, and, and fortunately, ophthalmology being uh, not a hospital-based uh, uh, specialty has, for the most part, uh, not been part of this, but you know, it's 85%, and it's certainly going to go higher and higher. And ultimately, the hospitals will want to employ their own ophthalmologists. And I think clinicians will have to make a decision. You know, it depends on the size of their group, whether they join or whether they start, you know, stay independent. And you know, if ACOs um, really evolve and are based in, by hospital groups. And the hospitals control the patient flow. You know, ophthalmologists may not have a have a chance uh, to to stay independent, which is what you know all the primary care care guys found out many many years ago. I haven't talked to too many clinicians who have enjoyed their new employment in uh, in the new system. I think they all were you know, all like being independent, but you know it's kind of it is what it is, and they had no choice, and they're they're making the best of it. But you lose control. You know, the, the hospital now controls what you do, and um, I think that I think a lot of ophthalmologists uh, went into ophthalmology uh, to to kind of run their own practice and be a bit independent. And I think that that is a potential threat. And that's why a lot of in a lot of regions groups are getting bigger. And if you if you're bigger, you'll you'll potentially you know survive as an independent longer. 
Well, so should my nephew go into ophthalmology? I still think it is the absolute best specialty. Uh, we, you know, we get a lot of great uh, feedback from our patients that you know we, that that uh, that we make their lives better. And, and no matter what type of medical system that he'll go into, I, I can't imagine anything being better and more fruitful than ophthalmology. Well, maybe he'll maybe he'll listen to you instead of me. So, thank, <laughs> thanks for the time today. You've been very generous and a great conversation. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. Thanks again to Ed Holland for joining us today on the OIS podcast. We look forward to seeing him and you at the next Ophthalmology Innovation Summit. If you haven't registered yet, go to ois.net, sign up, and then we'll see you in San Diego. Join the Surgical Ophthalmology Innovators on April 16th in San Diego for OIS at ASCRS, where you will see and meet the leading companies and clinicians. The now expanded program features a showcase of emerging technologies to treat the most pressing anterior segment diseases, while also including plenary talks and discussions around business, regulatory, and finance. Hear what Jim Mazo has to say. I would tell you that OIS is now the come-to meeting in ophthalmology, and the reason is, is you're able to bring industry, practitioners, innovators in one audience discussing not what's happening today, but what's happening tomorrow. Very rarely do you have a meeting where you're discussing the future of an industry. You're usually talking about the presence, and that's why people come to this meeting, because they're hearing about things today that will impact our industry tomorrow. Visit OIS.net and sign up today.